Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Tractor Supply trusts 5G solutions from T-Mobile. Together, they're connecting over 2,200 stores with 5G business internet and powering AI so team members can match shoppers with the products they need faster. This is enriching customer experience. This is Tractor Supply with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 14, 14 of Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso, thank you for tuning in. Before we get into it, I want to talk about iTunes reviews, everyone's favorite subject, I'm sure. And I know every podcast you listen to repeatedly asks its listeners to leave them a review. It helps us reach new people, they'll tell you. Hell, I've told you that. And it's true. But more importantly, in our case, Talk Easy is an independently produced and distributed show. At least for now, that is. In clear language, that means we don't have a larger apparatus to promote and create what we're doing here. I suspect, quite honestly, that this won't always be the case. Or rather, I hope it's not. But in the meantime, this is a program built on a little bit of sleep, a lot of caffeine, and most importantly, genuine love for what we're putting out into the world. And so, if you've enjoyed this podcast in the past, it would mean a lot if you can consider writing a review or sharing it with your friends. It doesn't even have to be a lengthy review, just the words, this show good, would suffice. Anyway, that is my speech. I'm done. Let's get on to the show. This week on Talk Easy, we have documentarian Alex Gibney. If the name sounds unfamiliar, I assure you you've seen at least one of his many movies. And by many, I really mean so many, I can't even run through his resume because it would take the duration of this show. In, in my book, the highlights include Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, Casino Jack and the United States of Money, Freakonomics, Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, We Still Secrets, The Story of WikiLeaks, and so many more. I'll just stop there. His most recent work, titled Zero Days, which comes out this Friday, is an exciting and revealing portrait of cyber warfare in the 21st century. If you get up in the morning and turn off your alarm and make coffee, power plants, power grids, and pump gas, transportation, telecommunication, and use the ATM, you've touched industrial control systems. It's what powers our lives. Most of these systems are relatively easy for a sophisticated hacker to get into. The security experts who are studying Stuxnet really think it required the resources of a nation-state. It spread to any Windows machine in the entire world. We didn't know if it was set to turn off all electricity plants around the world or it would start shutting things down or launching some attack. When it comes to Gibney's output, there's a lot to unpack here. His films are often thrilling and entertaining in ways other documentaries are not. For some, 
this trademark has become a point of contention within the doc community. Where is the line between documentarian and journalist, entertainer and truth-teller? Gimney opens up about a lot of this and more, including his unnerving experiences with the Church of Scientology during the making of Going Clear, the problems with contemporary media, and, my personal favorite subject, the tortured and cursed mythology of the Chicago Cubs, which he explored, sorry, correction, which he painfully explored in the 30 for 30 doc, Catching Hell. So, finally, here is Alex Gibney. Um, I mentioned the amount of movies you've made because I want to know how someone can make as diligent and um, films with so much depth mm. as you do and, and with the frequency in which you make them. Well, the frequency is a bit of an illusion in the sense that it's not like they're made quickly. They all take a long time. But sometimes I work on more than one. At once? At once. Okay. And particularly in the cutting room. So I could have two, sometimes three movies in the cutting room at a time. And sometimes on some will stop and then I'll move over to the other one. And that allows you, particularly on investigative projects, not to have to kind of cut the cord when you run out of money because mm. you can husband your resources a little bit more carefully. How often are you running out of money? Well, you know, if you're going for two years, right. that's a long time. Yeah. And, and, but, and we budget accordingly, but it's just like it, it can't go on forever. Right. At some point, there's a finite amount of resources. So uh. you come up with a budget. And, and, but sometimes a way of stretching that budget is to um, shut down for a while or, 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 or cut back to all but a few very important people. And mm-hmm. then, you know, keep going so that you can uh, then dig back in later. Some documentarians take decades to yeah, finish movies. I mean, I, I've not the, – the longest one for me was the Lance Armstrong film. Right. Which for obvious reasons, yeah, for- <laughs> that took five years. Um, and, you know, we went through a lot of uh, Sturm and Drang on, on that. <laughs> right. Um, but – yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, at some point, I, I I remember I made the Enron film. I think it was – I've made some very quickly. The film I made with Eugene Jarecki, uh, Trials of Henry Kissinger, we made that in about three months. Uh-huh. Uh, and Enron, I think, was about nine months. The Lance Armstrong one is interesting because you were lied to. Right. Very explicitly. Yep. And you mentioned it in the film. Right. How often do you think that happens? I think it happens a lot. Yeah. I imagine so. <laughs> I think it happens a lot. And I'm usually not one who will call people on it necessarily right. in the moment. It's once I'm in the cutting room. That's a conscious choice so that you're not calling him on it. Yeah, it's a conscious choice not to be sort of the on-camera anchor who's interrupting. Mm. You know, that, that's more of a live TV thing. My job is to get people to tell their stories the way they want to tell them. Um, I will come back and I will redirect, particularly if I think they are lying to me. I'll ask them the question again and phrase it a little bit differently, maybe supply some more information. Um, but uh, if they insist on lying to me, then I let them lie. Do you get annoyed? Yeah. You get annoyed, but, you know, it's uh, – I found myself lying in odd moments when I, I, I don't think there's any particular reason for it. So I see it as kind of a human trait. It's not a really what good you, one. What are you lying about? Well, I don't know. Nothing, nothing super important. But sometimes, I don't know. You're you. You don't want to tell somebody some bad news or something, or you 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 come up with some. You shade a story that makes you look better than you should. That kind of thing. That's human. Yeah, that's natural. When you do confront these people, what is? I'm interested in like the most violent reaction you've had of like you saying, "You said this, and this is the truth, and you lied to me on camera," even though we had previously established a supposedly healthy well I, i'd say the, the 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 most straightforward conversation i had with somebody um was with lance armstrong yeah and we had a conversation on the phone where uh, he had to come clean right um and so we talked about it yeah run me through that conversation that seems fascinating well this was before oprah um you know he, he was beginning to go out to a number of people to say, you know what, I did dope. Um, and I didn't tell you the truth. 
and I'm telling you the truth now, and I'm going to come clean publicly. Uh, this was after he had been taking a beating right. because um, a huge amount of testimony had come forward. And because of that huge amount of testimony, it was a little bit like the Cosby situation where suddenly so many people are saying something, it's hard to imagine that they could all be making it up. Mm-hmm. I had a hint that it was coming, yeah. so it wasn't like, it, you know, I wasn't a Pollyanna about the, the whole thing. Right. But it was a good conversation. And over time, uh, it, it allowed me sometimes on the record, sometimes off the record, to to go further than I had, had gone before. And, and and I was able to get him to sit down a second time. Did he give you an explanation over the phone as to why he repeatedly... Because you two had trusted each other. You've been working together for how, how long? Yeah, I mean, look, I was... Uh, I, I think, in his view, it was a necessary lie. So right. he just... I was hiding something... Um, and for him, I think it was very pragmatic. Mm. Uh, I had to do what I had to do. Uh, I wouldn't have won if I didn't dope. And if um, you don't dope, you don't win. And, of course, doping is illegal, so or, e- either illegal or against the rules. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk about it. But <clears throat> the conversations that he and I had had more to do with the way he lied. I recognized that there was a certain moral relativism you know, in the sport. There was a kind of ethic of doping. Right. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying it existed. There were other people besides Lance Armstrong who doped. But what Lance did was he built himself up as kind of this paragon of virtue. And he did so with a certain kind of person, i.e. cancer survivors, who had a very deep-seated need to believe that he was clean. Mm-hmm. Because for them, it wasn't about putting a chemical in your body. It was about having the will to fight, yeah. right? That kind of will was very important to the them. Perseverance, to, perseverance, to, to continue strength, onward. Yeah. Um, that 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 it was a, 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 you know, if you believe, uh, what was the? I'm trying to remember the Nike slogan, but there are oh, a few. Live strong. Well, not just live strong, but there was um, uh, there were some other ones. All, all the same, it, it it did eventually boil down to slogans above anything else. Yeah, but I think that there were people who really, truly believed in yeah. him because of that. And that, to me, was the egregious part. And that's what I told him. Right. I mean, I remember in grade school, we got the yellow every, wristbands. They passed them out like they were, you know, number two pencils. And and I have a uh, my brother-in-law, who's who died of cancer, you know, proudly wore his yellow wristband. Um, and, you know, they depended on him as a kind of a symbol mm. of how if you dug in and fought, something unbelievable could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that lie, to me, was powerfully wrong. Right. And that's what we talked about a lot, the idea that he had lied, because I was the one who had to tell him that the film, which was starting out to be The Road Back, mm-hmm. would now have to be called The, Lo- the Armstrong Lie. And how did he feel about that? You know, he took it better than I would have thought. In some ways, he's he's kind of pragmatic. And he told other people, you know, I did lie. So I think at the end of the day, he made himself okay with it. You mentioned moral relativism. It seems a lot of your documentaries are sort of unearthing and figuring out the morality of a certain person. How do you um, sort of remove your own moral compass or... Do you remove your own moral compass when you're making these films? Well, I don't think you do, particularly when you get in the cutting room. I think you have to think about that stuff long and hard. But what happens in the cutting room is a little bit different than what happens when you're filming, either Mm -hmm. in the street, on the road, or in in an interview situation. In those instances, of course, you're thinking about how a person might be lying to you, but you're also trying to get them to express themselves in the way that they're trying to express themselves because it's the job of a good documentarian it seems to me is not to constantly be doing as as many tv interviewers do to remind the viewer how morally upright and (laughs) smart and powerful they are right um it's to it's to explore the way other people think and so what i think by the time I get to the end and what I think in the middle are, are two different things. And sometimes I allow myself to go down a road to be open to them convincing me of their point of view. That's important, I think. Convincing them. 
convincing you of their point of view. Yeah, to allow me to right. be convinced of their point of view. So you, you, know? remain, you remain open-minded. Yeah, you have to. Right. So in the case of Elliot Spitzer. Yep. And he was a fascinating character. I mean, you can hear my questions in the moment. I mean, I'm asking him about things like, why did you do these things when you knew they were against the law? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like I don't ask the, the uncomfortable questions, but I was more interested in hearing him explain why he did what he did than I was trying to point a finger at him and say, you're wrong. Right. Which is what you think most folks in media do. Well, I, I, you, you see it a lot on TV news. Mm-hmm. The camera is supposed to be on the other person, but in a way it's, it's really on them. A long time ago, Michael Arlen wrote a great piece about sort of the worst part of 60 Minutes. You know, the, the, there's some great journalism done on 60 Minutes, but the, the worst part mm-hmm. is where everything's about the actor, which is the correspondent who's convincing you what a great guy or gal he or she is, right. rather than um, really probing and trying to understand on a deeper level what goes on in somebody's head. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Broadcast News with William Hurt. Do you remember this? What, the one where he's... Where he starts crying. Oh, and, right. In the middle, and, and, it, and the camera cuts to him. Yeah, that's right. And Albert Brooks is infuriated as it's breaking all his all journalistic the, all codes. All his journalistic codes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you have documentarian codes? Yeah, you have to have. Uh, and, and sometimes they're straightforward journalistic codes, and sometimes... They're rules that you apply to the film you're making. I mean, for example, in, in this current film, you know, we have a, a character who is rendered, who is a composite character, which, you know, some, you know, in print journalism would be a, a no-no. In this case, I think it's perfectly valid and truthful and also valuable for source protection. Likewise, in Client 9 mm-hmm. – you know, I found one of the escorts uh, who was very important in that story, persuaded her to talk, but she wouldn't go on camera. And no. Her voice was very distinctive. So we hired an actress. And the first time you're introduced to her, we don't say that she's an actress. We do reveal it by the end. But we did that on purpose. And the reason was it was a story about how everything is different than the way you think it is. Mm. So you present things as one way and then you find out something else about them. You see – uh, you know, uh, this black artist with this straw cowboy hat, you think he's an artist and what is he doing in this movie? And then you find out, oh, he was a booker from mm. one of these agencies, one of these escort agencies. And everything is a kind of a misdirect because nothing is exactly what it, it seems on the surface. I think some of the criticism you've received for doing that is because the line between documentarian and journalist seems to be constantly blurred. I don't know that that you know i'm not sure this comes up over and over again particularly in talking about my work in terms of the line between the documentarian and the journalist i i suppose you could see what i do more as the new journalism you know you mm. think of like you know when truma capote did in cold blood it's not newspaper journalism but i would argue that journalism you know they have a set of rules even in the daily paper where they carve things up and repurpose quotes and and shade things in order to make a compelling story right. that people read. And so within that context, that's what documentarians do too, or that's what I do. I should just speak for myself. That's what I do. I try to make a compelling story that I think is fundamentally truthful. Mm. But that doesn't mean that, you know, for example, in the case of the actress in Client 9, um, I could have shot her in the traditionally accepted way of putting her in front of a light and metallically altering her voice. And we tried that, actually. Um, but it rendered her as a kind of caricature, as a sort of, uh, you know, somebody in the witness protection program. Mm. And, and, and there was a sort of a monstrous quality about her or a dark quality about her that was not at all in line with who she really was. Right. And I think, actually, what we did with the actress was much closer to the truth of who she was and what kind of truth teller she was in this case than – the hoary old convention. So sometimes I think as a filmmaker, you have to use techniques that may be uh, fictional, uh, but ultim- but fundamentally more truthful than doing something in a kind of prescribed fashion. So do you consider yourself part of the new school of journalism? I mean, I, I consider myself a filmmaker with a, with a kind of a journalistic... Um, bent. Bent, yeah. That's a fair description. Yeah. But 
people still approach your movies as if it's fact that every everything presented is well, are, you, are you okay with them i mean i don't have anything you know there's nothing in my films that that i feel is intentionally uh inaccurate or yeah, just, inaccurate right you know uh and we all of our all of my films go through a really rigorous fact checking process but there are times where we may misdirect or we may uh, allow deception to play itself out mm-hmm. put it that way only to come back around at the other end and sometimes to embrace ambiguity i think that's the other issue that i think is important mm. good films i think sometimes do embrace ambiguity or contradictions rather than you know rush to resolve them and have the have the anchor come in with the pointer and say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. But you are still in the movie. I sure. Mean, you, so, but, so, I, but it's usually with a subjective <clears throat> voice. Over time, I've become more comfortable with that voice. But so have you, you do have any issues sometimes about appearing in the film? Some people are, like Michael Moore, is, he is the film. Sometimes it's the Fred Wiseman approach. You, you don't see Fred Wiseman in movies. You don't see Fred Wiseman, though. Fred Wiseman will tell you that you know, his degree of manipulation is extreme, particularly oh, in terms of the editing. Certainly, mainly because he shoots hundreds of hours. Right. Right. But then, and, and, and sometimes his juxtapositions in the cutting are, you know, have a, a very hard-edged editorial voice or right. a, a real point of view. Do you think you have a point of view? Sure. Of course I do. Is it explicit? Uh, I think it's easily intuited by the time you get to the end of the film. But at the same time, I hope that other points of view emerge, which are strongly held and allow, you know, and, and live and breathe mm-hmm. as opposed to everything being dominated. Right. So you want more of a, a multifaceted portrait. Yeah. I mean, I, everything, every film that I do is dominated by my point of view, but hopefully not so dominated that other points of view don't come through. When it comes to your work, where do you think the line is between putting a message out there and making a piece of art? I hope it's closer to a piece of art. In the sense that if you're conveying a simple message, there are probably better things, better ways to communicate a simple message than in a documentary film. Right. You know, you'd ho- I hope that, the, you know, the, to me, the great documentaries are vivid because they contain a sense of how unruly life is. Mm. Um, so... Um, is that your it's objective? Like people, is that your objective? The, the, well, you, you know, I... I Inevitably, like people get angry at my films, and there's a sense of injustice. And and uh, but uh, what are they angry about? Well, it depends on the movie. I mean, you know, if you saw Maya Maxima Culpa, you'd be pretty pissed off at the Catholic Church, I think, in mm. terms of the way they covered up crimes. Um, but I, I think that to me, art is about embracing the contradictions of everyday life so that everything isn't so simple. Um, it's not so complicated that it's incomprehensible. And, you know, a lot of what I try to do in my films is to make complicated things at least understandable. Mm. But within that context, you know, particularly in terms of human beings and human psychology, it's, it, it's not so simple. Right. It's I mean, not a world of white hats and black hats. Mm. You do often take very complex ideas and manage to make them palatable for an American audience. Do you worry that, you're, that you, you may simplify them? I don't think so. I mean, I think that part of what I do, and usually because it, it, it takes me a long time to understand what's going on, and if I can understand it, then I should be able to present it right um, clearly to a to a viewer. But I mean, that's part of the virtue of what my films can do, I think, is to wade into something complicated and to at least be able... I, I think there are levels of complexity. You want to be able to say clearly what's going on and not confuse people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, embrace the ambiguities of human behavior. Do you ever run into mid-project and you think, "Oh, this is I can't I can't move forward with this project," or you no longer find it interesting? I've not I've not gotten to a point where I didn't didn't find it interesting. Usually, the ones I've taken on, I, I, I'm pretty certain they were interesting. But certainly, I've gotten to places with a lot of my films where I thought, "Oh my God, how are we going to get there?" And, you know, Zero Days would certainly be one of those because it's so complicated and so few people were willing to talk on the record. It made it very difficult. And we still secrets. Julian Assange refused to talk. But that, in its own wonderful way, led me to Chelsea Manning. Mm -hmm. And Chelsea Manning ends up being kind of the heart of the film. So, you know, 
that's the glory of doing documentaries. Sometimes when you're blocked, the workaround ends up being more interesting than the original road you mm. thought you were taking. When did this all, when did you decide that this is what you were going to dedicate your life to? <laughs> I wish it was, <laughs> I wish it was like that, where I sat down at dinner and said to myself, and now I'm going to dedicate my life to this. <laughs> it wasn't really like that at all. I mean, I, I, I was interested in filmmaking and coming out of college, I knew I wanted to be in films and I was inspired at the time by all these films that I, I saw in college. Some of them were documentaries. Many of them were fiction films. It seemed like a wild period of um, creative energy. Where did you go to college? And what- I went to Yale, and then I went to and then I went to UCLA Film School. Okay. I didn't finish, uh-huh. but I got a job working for the Samuel Goldwyn Company. What's what era are we, are we talking so about? So this here? would be I I graduated from college in seventy seven. Okay, and then I went to UCLA in the early eighties, and um, Worked for Goldwyn then, did everything from recuts to cutting trailers to, to cutting movies. And then then I I got frustrated and I hung out a shingle to do documentaries. And that, What you were know, you frustrated by? As an editor, as a film editor in fiction, you're only as good as what the director gives you. It's very hard to make a film in the cutting room. In documentaries, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. You make them in the cutting room. Right. And anything is possible. But in fiction, you know, if the director hasn't done a good job on the set or if the script is flawed, it's very hard for you to fix it in the cutting room. So um, I decided to, um, you know, rather than work my way up as an editor to try to become a director, I just hung out at a shingle to do documentaries. And that was, uh, those were a lot of bleak years. It, I didn't get much work at the time. And that was a time when documentary actually was kind of a dirty word. Mm. Why, why dirty? Well, people just – documentary meant something boring, you know, one of those educational films that uh. you were forced to watch in junior high school. <laughs> I remember those. Growing spinach. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was just not <laughs> – it wasn't uh, – so – but that changed. Everything changed, you know, uh, and suddenly documentaries – I think people – I think the TV landscape became so boring and routinized, even cable television, where every channel had to have an imprint. Right. That suddenly theatrical documentaries burst out and were a breath of fresh air. They were dramatic. They were fun. They were inventive. And they were about real life. When did you see that change? It happened over time. But, you know, I, I remember feeling it start with – way back with uh, Errol Morris's film, uh, Thin Blue Line. That, you know, that was the exact one that I was going to say. Is, is I, that was a, such a groundbreaking film. Yeah. Um, but also some of the Europeans, like Werner Herzog, were, were making really interesting documentaries, Vim Vendors. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the United States, it, you know, I, I remember, I mean, the kind of thinking breakthrough for me happened with The Trials of Henry Kissinger, which was a film I wrote and produced, and Eugene Jarecki directed it. But it was a film that, about the dark side of Henry Kissinger that we couldn't get funded by American television. Mm-hmm. And the BBC gave us some dough, but the only way we could get it seen in the United States was to put it in theaters. Uh-huh. And it was entertaining enough so that people went, and it was also a subject that weren't, they weren't allowed to see on television. So suddenly, you know, they were pouring into theaters. It was, it was great. It was a revelation. And then because it was sanctified as entertainment, suddenly it could be put on television. Hmm. So that was a it was a big lesson, which is if you tell an engaging story, you can say just about anything you want. <laughs> and and did you feel like after the Kissinger project that your career was moving in the direction that yeah, you wanted? Yeah, it did. I you know then I was a I was a I, I produced this series called The Blues with Martin Scorsese, and there I didn't direct any, but I was watching other filmmakers do these documentaries in a very personal way, sort mm-hmm. of like in the Tom Wolfe, Truman Capote, mm-hmm. Norman Mailer kind of new journalism thing. Um, and then I did Enron, and then I was off and running. Yeah. Since Enron, you've made a lot. Yeah. About Titanic figures. Um, as someone who was born and raised in Chicago, I, the first thing I saw of yours was Catching Hell, um, which still personally may be my favorite <laughs> one to date. Uh, can we some? I want to talk about. Sure. How, like, run me through 
you getting involved in that project and just that story in total? I have to be honest and say that you know I actually brought a different project to ESPN, <laughs> but they couldn't. You're breaking my heart here. They okay. couldn't. They couldn't do it. Um, what, for, what was the story? Oh, it, was, it had to do with uh, baseball and doping and um, this is pretty steroids. Va- this is pretty and, vague, right here. Yeah, but I, I think it would would have been harder. Uh, the approach I was intending to take was 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 pretty intense. In any event, for all sorts of reasons, they steered me in in another direction, mm-hmm. and uh, and they. S- you know, they had some stories that they thought would be interesting, and and they suggested a few. And the one I really liked was the Steve Bartman story, mm-hmm. because I felt like I had, I had, um, I was interested in scapegoats. Right. I, You're from Boston, right? Well, I'm from Boston, so it wasn't the Chicago thing so much. Yeah. Though I, my dad had lived in Chicago, so I had some allegiance to the city. Mm. I certainly knew the lore of the Cubs, <laughs> and the Cubs shared a certain thing with the Red Sox. In terms of you know the the perennial losers, yeah, the Red not, Sox. It's would, not a great thing that they share. No, no, no. <laughs> it looks like the Cubs will finally break out this year. We'll see. Uh, but, let's. Not. Um, so I was interested in it, both because you know I was a big baseball fan. Uh, you know I I knew I had spent some time in Chicago and I certainly knew the lore. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I was interested in this idea of scapegoats from um, Taxi to the Dark Side and. Um, and even Casino Jack, another film I had done. So, right. um, so I so I started, and it was a fascinating ride, and, and and again, fascinating about the road not taken because the assumption going in by everybody, including me, was that we'd find a way to get Steve Bartman to talk. Uh-huh. But at the end of the day, I think the film is more interesting for the fact that he doesn't talk. It, I think so too. I, I mean, though the whole time, like, are they gonna are they gonna get him? Right. Oh no, he's not going to talk. And then, my memory serves me correct. You like kind of accosted him. I didn't accost him, but I told the story of a guy named Wayne Dres, who accosted him literally oh, right. in a in a parking lot. Right. Um, and, um, and in fact, Wayne tells the story in the film. Right. So so yeah, it was about you know sort of hunting him down. The one person in America seemingly who's not interested in his fifteen minutes of fame. Right. Did you think at any point that you were going to get him on camera? We tried. We tried so hard. Have, have you ever talked to him? I've never talked to him. Oh. I've talked to him. I've talked to his lawyer. That's, that's as close as I got. And we talked to some people who knew him. Um, it was interesting how loyal people were to him. Yeah. In terms of not giving him up. Well, it's an atrocious thing that happened. Yeah. It's a shame as, as, as someone who loves the Cubs. Yep. It's a shameful moment. It is a shameful moment. I agree with you. It was the crowd needed a victim. Right. And he was the perfect victim. He was. Uh, and I, if, if for some inexplicable reason he is listening to this, I, uh, I'm sorry on behalf of Chicago. I hope that if they win this year, they will hold a Steve Bartman day. And even, and it may be poetic justice that he still doesn't show. Yeah. But I think everybody should dress as he dressed that night. <laughs> I, I'll make a prediction. If they do win, um, and this is we're jinxing it by talking about it, I doubt they'll hold that night. But even if they do, I would bet big money that he does not come. I agree. I think he probably won't. But I, I think that people should have the evening and celebrate it anyway. They mm-hmm. owe him that. Mm-hmm. Why, do you think, uh, why do you think we need scapegoats? It seems deep-seated. I mean, I talked to uh, you know a, a, a minister about it, as you know in the film, right, and it right. goes way back to the very idea of what was the scapegoat. To you pile all the sins on on the animal and drive it over the cliff. It is convenient. Well, because nobody wants to be implicated, and and, and it's one of the things that's really interesting to me in the in in some of the films that I make is that people rush to judgments about certain people. Uh. And then they want to scapegoat them because it relieves us of any kind of sense of responsibility. That's why I think we're so fond of black hats and white hats. It's like there's a good guy. No, I thought he was a good guy, but now he's a bad guy. Uh As if everything good that that person had done now is wiped away. Right. It's an easy judgment. And it's an easy judgment that, that takes away that person's humanity and saves it for us as if, you know, somehow we're more perfectly human. So... 
I, I do think it's a it's a kind of self deception that mm. we employ. We need the scapegoat to take the pressure off ourselves. Do you use them? Do I use scapegoats? I try not to. Right. I think you're. You know, we we're probably hardwired to seek them out. You know, because uh, it's difficult to take responsibility and also to admit that you know you share in the problem. Mm. I I know I do, and I and I know what I'm doing intellectually, and yet I I always feel that things like this we rationalize it by saying, oh, it's hardwired in us. I'm not sure that's a rationalization. It's a rationalization if you believe that you can't help yourself. I mean, the beauty of the of, of the human psyche is that we may be hardwired to have a predisposition for something, but it doesn't mean we can't overcome it. So you believe in growth? In growth. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, otherwise, we can't be condemned, you know, to throw refuse at Steve Bartman because the shortstop booted the ball. Right. You know, you may feel it in the moment, but um, but you got to admit to yourself that it's 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 a crazy. Thing. It is crazy. Yeah. Or or Bill Buckner, you know, by the time the ball <laughs> skirted under his legs, you know, which is a much more terrifying image for a scapegoat because you know Bartman didn't end the game; he just started a series of events. If right. you believe in that kind of fate, that is that, it wrong that I that I do. What, I, that you believe? I kind of do. Like, like I, it's, it's not entirely his fault, but it also a little bit is. I, in my, I'm, but I, am I crazy for believing that? Is that superstition? I no longer believe it. I mean, I can understand why people do, but I no longer believe it. Having seen how many people reach for that ball, number one. I know, I know. And then also having then looked at... Um, I know what happens after. I know there's a, there's a seventh game that we no one thinks about. Right. There's a there's another error. There's at second also base. what Moises Alou does. Right. You know, the, the throwing the glove. Right. I know. I know this. And know. yet, most of my think family. Think of it this yeah, way. Okay, okay. If if the bar owner, I can't. I, I think his name was Looney. Pat Looney. I think um, had had been the one who tipped the ball, and he had stood up, and he had given everybody the finger after they started to boo him. I think the incident would have just moved on. But there was something about what was most disturbing to me about the Bartman incident was that Bartman was the perfect victim because he just sat there with his headphones on right. and his head uh, and his hat looking straight ahead, looking like a deer in the headlights. And so because he was meek, it, it almost engaged and enraged the crowd even more. Yeah. Um, and that to me is the yeah. terrifying part. He physically personified the scapegoat. Yes. It, was, it wasn't just the action. It was, look at this person with headphones in while he's close to the field, looking me. And he seemed to be so distant and dissociated um, and not engaging with the crowd and fearful. Right. And that somehow gave permission to the crowd to, to be even more aggressive and brutal. Yeah. I feel bad. <laughs> I, I do. I feel bad. No, it's, it, was, it was a terrible moment. And yet, it, it you know it, it it is a moment of of humanity. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing about right. it. And of course, we all are like that. You know, we're looking for reasons. How could it have happened? Um, was that the moment? Did 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 the Cubs start to to choke as a result? You know, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Let's talk about the, the Scientology sure. documentary. Incredible in terms of scaring the shit out of me. Uh, and everyone I know who's seen that film, which is a lot, that movie got a lot of play and was talked about quite a bit. Um, I don't know if it's your most popular film. I don't know how you. I don't know how you measure, but a lot of people saw it. Yeah, a lot of people saw it. In part, it was on HBO, I think, yep. right? Uh, how are you feeling about the Church of Scientology now? After, with now that the project's out, have people reached out to you since then? Sure, a lot of people. Uh, Ex-members right. reached out, very grateful that things that were formerly not able to be spoken were spoken, mm -hmm. and in uh, sort of engage them to start speaking out more often. Right. Um, Is do you see a deterioration at all in, in terms of the church? I think the church, you know, has has its fanatical defenders, mm -hmm. and it certainly still has a lot of cash, but I don't see. A lot of people rushing to get into the Church right. of Scientology, 
And I think it has been weakened, and I think it will continue to be weakened. The Internet, I think, was a big part. But, but going clear played an important role, I think. It also played a role, too, you know, talking about Bartman and scapegoats and so forth. I think for a lot of people, one of the valuable things about going clear was it showed a number of Scientologists or ex-Scientologists up close. Right. And you didn't look at them and say, oh, wow, what crazy motherfuckers. Sorry, I don't know if you can say motherfuckers. Yeah, we, right? you, you can curse on the show. Yeah, yeah. so you thought, what smart, savvy, interesting people. Right. Um, and so then the cult and the abuse of power in the cult becomes more understandable. You're seeing it as a human experience, not the um, the experience of sort of distant nut jobs with which you have nothing in common, with whom you have nothing in common. Mm. So that, to me, was the powerful part. You know, that's why the the film starts by tracking how all those people got into the church, what they got out of it, and then once the church had their clutches into them, how they um, abused that power. I'm I'm impressed. I mean, IBM. I'm interested. In this case, it's explicit that Harvard said publicly the main reason to do this is to get money, right? And and, to, and not pay taxes. It's clearly a scam. A scam. Yeah. It's not. It's not like oh, maybe it's a scam or you know you got to read in between. No, it's like it's not between the lines. It's the lines. It was a scam. Yeah, I think though, ironically, that he ended up believing his own cosmology. Sure. He came to, and that's an interesting psychological fact. Um, and, and I think it's not just about religion, but all kind of belief systems. So you're talking about the, if you, it's not a lie if you believe it? Right. Mm, that's the George Costanza line. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, I guess he, bought into it it also quite literally paid off to well buy it definitely it. paid off but he bought into it so much so that you know he's he's asking um you know one of his fellow scientologists to to hook up the e-meter to you know extra load of of voltage in order to zap the thetans out of his body i mean that's somebody who's become a true believer someone who's gone mad yes right exactly how do you reckon with um folks like tom cruise or Travolta, I think you ask by by putting them in the film, you are asking the audience to really consider our allegiance to them as, as movie stars, as as people who are still and uh, or at least want, were icons. I think the, the the only issue I have with that is you know I don't have a problem with Tom Cruise being an actor or a movie star. I have a problem with him using his status as a movie star to you know abuse the human rights of other people mm. that's what i have a problem with it's an abuse of power issue right and did you ever i mean i'm sure you attempted yeah sure we did we tried there was no chance of that happening no i i we fully engaged with with cruz's publicist who was clearly doing the bidding of the church right um in terms of trying to get him to talk uh, but no there's something uh very unnerving and sick about the calculated move they have made on the publicity front. Well, it's it's baked into the doctrine. It's Hubbard's fair game. Mm. Um, and they're honor-bound to attack people who they feel, you know, poses an existential threat to the church. Right. But he was at one time open about it. I mean, he appeared on, like, with Matt Lauer, and, like, that interview blew up. And I think he knows that he lost some very powerful relationships in Hollywood as a result of pushing his beliefs did too he? hard. He did. He's in a movie every year that I make, know, but, makes but hundreds it, of millions there of dollars. Some, there are some very big directors and producers who broke with him over him trying to push his Scientology too hard. So in in funny ways, his Scientology, you know, he's not as powerful now as he used to be. And his Scientology, I think, has cost him a bit in terms of his career. But he, he definitely won't let it go. Do you, Can you rationalize or explain why anyone would still... I think part of, the part of part of what is it pure the, brainwashing? Is part that? of the movie is what that's about. You know, you, you it becomes part of your character. So you think that to give it up means that you're having right. to give up a piece of who you are, mm-hmm. and that other people who attack you for it are trying to attack you for being who you are. Mm. 
uh, that it's so baked in. And I think we all experience that to some extent when people, um, you know, that, that certain beliefs become who we are. Mm. And then if you question those beliefs, you think, well, wait a minute, you know, or, or other people question those beliefs and you react defensively and emotionally in ways that you, you're surprised that you do. Mm. Did you ever feel unsafe in making that film? not physically unsafe but you know they they certainly made themselves noticed you know people would come up to me in dark parking lots and it's more about psychological destabilizing they came up to you in dark parking lots yeah and how, and your response was take out my iphone and start filming really yeah and also make sure get names um spell the name ask them to spell the name you know, there, there's a, there's somebody who always follows me when I go to L.A. Uh, he claims to be making a documentary about me. About you? Yeah. What, and the documentary is a, an examination of your Presumably, life? Presumably, yes, uh -huh. about what a scurrilous, um, um, suppressive person I am. Suppressive? Well, that's the Scientology term, SP, uh, or suppressive right, person. Right, I forgot about that so, term. But I always make a point of introducing him every oh. time I see him. And, and is, it, is it pretty religious? Does he follow you all the time? The last few times I've spoken publicly in L.A., he's been there, and he's been there up front. And you introduce him to the crowd? I do. Wow. And his response? He tries to, you know, put forward his message, but it's so clear that he's there as a kind of stooge right. for the church. I'm surprised that your response is to take out a phone. And that. I mean, it's admirable, and, and it's the true documentarian in you. But. It's not just a documentarian, but it's a way of saying, you know, people who are trying to get into your head, right. the best way to combat that is, to, you know, is not to make what they're doing a secret. Because mm -hmm. if, you know, if you're afraid of them, the temptation is to say, well, I just won't say anything or I'll try to pretend it's okay. If you, if you bring it out in the open, it's a little bit like what good therapy should be. Uh -huh. You talk it out. It's the talking cure. So, okay, you're here. You're accosting me. I'm now going to make a record of the fact that you're doing that. So you're not afraid? Um, I'm not that afraid. Huh. So you're, there, are, there are people who are, you know, they've gone after the people who were in the film much harder than, than they went after me. What about your family? Uh, no, no. That's good. I and mean, they went after my dad. He's dead, but they went after him. The, after he died? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't understand. What? Well, in one of the little documentaries they do on their website, oh, they they made a point of attacking my father. Okay, <laughs> I don't. It's, I don't it's see the, the kind of there. stuff they do. Right. I mean, so would you? They vilify. That's their. That's their, their thing. Ammo. Right. Is is if you attack the church, they will try to vilify you. Oh, this person is a squirrelous alcoholic. He's a liar. He, you know, and they make stuff up or. They they put together <laughs> materials that have they ever said anything accurate about you? Sometimes the stuff is accurate. It's just, uh, <laughs> it, but 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 it's not accurate in its intended meaning. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker, right. um, but um, I'm not a ruthless propagandist. Uh -huh. you're not. No. <laughs> I don't think so. You'll be the judge of that. No, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you are. No, but people have. We talked. We talked about this earlier. But what do you think? What's the criticism you think you get the most, or you, rather, you're most frustrated with, or think is particularly inaccurate? I probably shouldn't say. But there's two things. The, the prolific thing bugs me just because uh, people. Um, that's supposed to be a knock. In my view, is just deal with the films. As you see them. Right. Um, and the other thing is that uh, whenever I hear a journalist say, there's nothing new in this film, I, I want to tear my hair out. Usually because, <laughs> and I don't have much hair. I was about to say, I think yeah. you're... you're, you're. But, uh, but, <laughs> but the point is that almost all my films are about how moments that are well-known were misperceived in the moment. Mm. And so let's take another look at what's actually there and and indeed in taking that other look there's usually a lot of new information to be had uh, 
Well, thank you for doing that and for looking and for doing the show and uh, congrats on the new movie. No, many thanks, man. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Well, there it is. Alex's latest film, Zero Days, is out in limited release starting this Friday. You can watch several of Gimney's documentaries currently streaming on Netflix, including Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, and Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Also, quick thanks to the Larson folks for arranging this interview, and finally, to Alex for taking time to sit down on the show. If you're listening... Do be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you'd like to say hello, hi, or whatever, feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And lastly, if you enjoyed what you heard today or any previous episodes, please do consider giving us a review on iTunes. As always, our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones, social media by Maria Mayella, original illustrations by Krishna. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Malcolm Gladwell here. Let's re-examine the details of your employee benefits. With the Hartford Group Benefits Insurance, you'll get it right the first time. Keep your business competitive by looking out for your employees' needs with quality benefits from the Hartford. The Hartford Group Benefits team makes managing benefits and absences a breeze while providing your employees with a streamlined, world-class customer experience that treats them like people, not policies. From supplemental health benefits to coverage for life and loss and more, the Hartford has flexible products and personalized service solutions to meet the diverse and unique needs of your employees. Keep your workforce moving forward with group benefits from the Hartford. The buck's got your back. Learn more at thehartford.com slash benefits. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.